Welcome to Meet the New Boss, a riveting podcast series exploring how business leaders make their way in the world and how music has influenced who they have become. Here are your hosts, Vince Catanzaro and Jeff Neva. to another episode of Meet the New Boss. I'm your co-host, Jeff Neighbor. With me always is... Vince Catanzaro. Good morning, Jeff. How are you? Vince Catanzaro. I'm great. Good morning to you. It's a nice, cool, but sunny spring morning here in the great city of Greenville, South Carolina. Where are you today? I'm in, uh, in Atlanta, North Atlanta. <clears throat> Beautiful start North to Atlanta. spring. Beautiful start to spring here. I mean, yesterday was a gorgeous day. It was a little chilly here, to be honest. It was sunny, but there was a brisk wind out of the north. It's maybe my favorite weather weather pattern. I call it a nor'easter. Well, nor'easters typically like blizzards. Um, well, in Greenville, South Carolina, it could just be a really stiff, brisk, cool wind. Yeah, that had, I call a nor'easter. We had that yesterday here. It was beautiful. I you know oh, I have a few. You extra, had a nor'easter in Atlanta as well. I had a few extra pounds, so I'm able to uh, handle the uh, that that wind. Let's talk a little bit about our bumper music that comes into. It's my favorite intro to any podcast that I've ever produced, and it's by a great band from England. I'm going to do a little trivia and see if you can name them. They're from England. They were part of the British invasion. They have a very unique name because it's a pronoun. Can you name this band? Um, I'm going to go with... Uh, I tried to come up with something creative, but it was The Who. I was trying to get some, the deep, who. some deep, deep English deep. invasion band. I couldn't come up with it on the so, fly, though. What's your... Uh, what's your experience with the who have you seen them live i have not seen the who live my who experience my brother was a big who fan he's uh five years older than me and so you know he you know brought the who into my life um i was a fan in high school of the rock opera movie tommy uh you know really i always, I always dug um Elton John, you know, in the, key, in the Pinball yep. Wizard uh, scene. And I like his version of Pinball Wizard very much. So Tina Turner is in that movie, and I haven't seen it in years. But I do remember, I've seen it multiple times, and I do remember liking Tommy. <clears throat> I, you know, my favorite Who song, that whenever I hear it, it sticks in my head all day long, and I just love the, there's a lot of music like this where it's, uh, it, in, the, in whose case it's my generation, but when they talk about like how different their generation is, and it's always the same. It's the same story. It never changes. Yeah, everybody's right. You know, so uh, but I do love uh, my generation. Uh, I was in a conference in St. Louis in college, and the Who was playing, and I didn't have two nickels to rub together, and so I couldn't afford a ticket, but. A couple of my friends and I just went and hung outside. It was Bush Stadium, I guess. Like, that's all Budweiser country, right? And we just hung outside and listened to the last three or four songs. So that was... Outside? Outside the stadium. But you kind of hear it, right? <laughs> <laughs> the cheap, cheap person's version of that. That's the and then later, I was at a conference, an Oracle conference, and... Oracle would have this huge, a huge corporate event, you know, 30, 40,000 people there. And they would have all these bands for free as part of your deal to the conference. And I was able, because my boss never wanted to go, I was able to take his slot in like a VIP situation. And so I saw a ton of bands, kind of front rowy corporate events, which is, I don't know, it's kind of a, not the mud of rock and roll, but I saw. Roger Daltrey sing, and then it was Pete Townsend's brother play guitar, so it was pretty close to the Who. That was my second kind of Who exposure. So I think we're big fans. Um, they're, they're a unique band where Pete Townsend writes most of the lyrics, even, and then but he doesn't sing as much. 
I heard them described as four people who all wanted to be the lead. So the drummer's trying to be in the lead, the bass player, he's one of my favorite bass players, the singer and the guitarist, all just essentially playing leads on their instruments. And so it would be very chaotic. But Yeah, the drummer it, always uh, was kicking over his drums and stuff. Yeah, yeah. All right, cool. Well, let's get into some uh, some business talk. Um, I think today we're we, if you, if, for listeners of the show. Uh, if you go refer back to episode eight, we talked a little bit about how do you do, how do you know how many people you need, and so we introduced the idea of a staffing model where you you have some sort of objective, measurable thing uh, you can then tie to headcount to, and and then improve that over time. And so on this episode, we want to talk about um, how you can source those um, different resources. And so we want to be a little creative here because sometimes we get caught into uh, one or two ways of sourcing talent. And I think there's a lot of ways. And, you know, Vince, you've been in this game forever. So I think between the two of us, we know uh, a lot of different ways. So I um, wrote down a couple so one obvious one is just full-time people. You know, you go hire somebody. Sometimes I call those W-2. That's just the tax test of full-time people. Contractors, 1099s, right? So they come in, you pay them an hourly rate. They do their thing. Um, outsourced, where I would really call this like a fixed bid or statement of work. So, you know, you're at company A and you go to company B and you say, hey, I want you to achieve these deliverables for me and I'll pay you when you're done. And then also kind of introduce offshore models, nearshore models, you know, so nearshore would be probably in the same hemisphere you're in, but outside your country. A lot of times, both offshore and nearshore, you're often trying to get some sort of um, cost arbitrage, you know, so for the same kind of type of resource, Java developer too, you know, in the United States, you may pay 80 bucks an hour. And in India, you may pay 40 bucks an hour, 50 bucks an hour. Costa Rica, maybe you pay 55 bucks an hour, but you get them on the daytime. So uh, those are just different kind of models. Anything else that came to mind as you were thinking of it? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's, you know, within, Other ways, with, yeah. Yeah, within those models, you know, I've come across companies that specialty is the, you know, C market, USC market model or college town model where they'll, you know, and I'm thinking of one company in particular, they had an office in Savannah. So, so where, you know, you were getting a, a Java engineer, you know, let's just say, you know, you're building uh, as a as a service provider, $100 an hour for a Java engineer, you know, you can get those resources cheaper and maybe bill $80 an hour and you have, you know, offices in Lincoln, Nebraska, Savannah, right? And this kind of these smaller markets where there's multiple computer science campuses, com- you know, schools pumping out computer science people who aren't running into the big cities. Yep. That's a good model. So I've heard that described as rural America as a as a, as a strategy. Yeah. I think another one I thought of that often is overlooked is um, matrixed within your company, but not necessarily in your organization. So, I mean, you and I have been around long enough. There are people in, in corporate America, you know, that are working super hard, right? 50, 60 hours a week, just killing it. Um, and then there are people that are less busy, right? And sometimes that's of no, it's not that they're lazy. They're just, their team, for whatever reason, it could be seasonal or it could just be a transition time for them. They just don't have as much work. And so pretty, not too late in my career, but kind of deep into my career, I realized sometimes the cheapest resource to acquire is a resource that's already being paid for by your company. And maybe you can't get them full-time, but maybe you can get them half-time onto your project, right? And oftentimes that that can lead to a full-time thing. So you, you know, I think this is just where you're 
good at relationships with you know your boss, your boss's peers, your peers. You kind of just put the word out, hey, I got this big project. I only got 10 people on my team, but I'm doing this thing that's going to probably tax all of them out. And then some, does anybody have somebody who's not super utilized, right? Who's got some cycles is kind of the terminology I would use. And a lot of times people are, you know, people will identify those, those folks for you. Because one of the reasons they may not be, <clears throat> may not be fully utilized is sometimes it's a management problem. You know, it's hard to manage folks if they don't have enough work. It's, it's a little bit easier if you can say, hey, man, there's, you know, there's 70 hours of work for this human to do. And now as a manager, you're just helping them prioritize it, make sure that they, um, you know, can do it. But if there's only 20 hours of work, a lot of work for the manager to go find that extra 20, 25 hours a week, you know, week in, week out. And they may be happy to have somebody come and take that burden off of them. I don't know if you, how much you've experienced that, Vince. What do you think? Well, this is reminding me of uh, if an antidote and a situation I had to address where we initially started working together. Uh, they had this solution center model where we had W-2 full-time employees uh, of technology skills that we would bench in between projects, retrain, mm-hmm. blah, blah, and, uh, and so we're running into this problem, right? So in talent acquisition, you get a really unique view of a company, right? Because you work with everybody. So you're talking to all departments. So you're not siloed, right? So you get kind of this global view of the organization. And I was talking to a director and I'm like, hey, man, like you're hiring contractors for skill sets that we have in the solution center. Like, Why are you doing that? And he's like, well, you know, in the solution center is charging me one hundred and twenty dollars an hour for these people. And I can get them as a contractor for ninety dollars an hour. You know, it saves me my budget. I was like, well, dude, that's like phony money. Right. That's like fake money. Solution center money is fake money. Right. We're paying those people no matter what. You going out and getting a $90 an hour contractor is making that price go up to $130 an hour because they're still sitting right. there and not being billed. Right. Yeah. <laughs> 230 an hour. Yeah. I was like, it's all, it's all internal all-time money. I, and I guess, you know, if you're paid on your budget and that's a something for you, but that was something that needed to be addressed. I just remember it driving me crazy. And I was like, yeah, I said, yeah. that's why you know, how we're doing that is broken, right? Causing causing people not to use available internal resources, right? Cause so their model was addressing that. Hey, let's take these talent people and manage them that way so that they're able to go and stay busy and produce. And when they're not busy, we're retooling them or educating them and sharpening the, the saw, right? Good concept. Yeah. But then uh, how... The internal usage of them was done. It was a penalty to the to the operator from a budget perspective to use them, and they were just using to go get outside resources. Yeah. So it was just it was, ended up good idea, <clears throat> didn't execute very well. Yep, it's tough. Um, so I thought of another category would be like interns. I've had interns and. You know, mixed success, right? So sometimes um, getting an intern, it's almost like a full-time job for the manager to find full-time work for the intern. It's a, it's a, it's a hit or miss. I think sometimes I've had it where it worked out super well. Sometimes I had it where, you know, it, it just was, you know, never able to get the intern enough going. I, my experience is that. If you're going to code down an intern model, it would be good for your system to be in place that's really good at assigning work. Um, and so, and then I think it's also probably wise to have more than one intern at a time. So you kind of have a team that's taking over like a level one kind of role. Um, and so um, that's another. But so let's get down to how do how do we decide? Um, you're looking at a team and, and we've done the staffing model and we say, well, we're going to need 20 people for this project at peak. And then someday when we're finished with the project, our run rate 
uh, it's only going to be eight people. And so in front of you, you have these different categories we've talked about, you know, W-2s, 1099s, statements of work, offshore, nearshore, interns, you know, shared services or matrix kind of thing. What's your kind of approach as you think about that problem? Yeah, well, I think in in the world today that, you know, it's a blend of all those things to solve the problem, right? Because, you know, the cost, you know, probably the most expensive initial investment is to bring on a full-time employee, right? You're bringing them on, mm-hmm, you're giving mm-hmm. them benefits, you got to ramp them up, right? And now you own them, right? There's a cost to getting rid of them as well. So the, uh, you know, the most flexible way would be to provide contractors, you know, a statement of work, potentially, if you're going to give a piece of the project away, um, you know, then, and then, uh, and then there's cost factors, right? So if I, uh, and, you know, so if you have like, okay, we're going to peak up at 20, we only need eight, so we're going to need 12 flexible resources. How many of those flexible resources do we want on location? How many flexible resources do we really want to make sure are working, you know, daytime hours? You know, can we mm-hmm. offshore to to India, Eastern Europe, right? You know, so so there's so which is a, a potentially a cost savings. You know, so yeah, I've had, right. you know if some sometimes a perceived man hour cost savings is not necessarily a uh, production cost savings as well, right? So you got right. you got to kind of measure those things. And in all these all these different avenues that we spoke about, whether it's interns, offshoring, hiring full time, bringing on contractors, there's a level of maturity and commitment to the process of doing all those things well that are right. extremely important. Because if you don't offshore well, it's a nightmare. If you don't yeah. intern well, it's a nightmare. Right, so. You know, hire well, it's 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 a nightmare. So those are the things that, you know, not only do you got to figure out the the model or the matrix of how we're going to do it, but then you got to be committed to all those different processes as well. Yep. So practically, here's how I've kind of approached it. I, I spin up a spreadsheet, right? And I have by month, month one through month end, right? We're in, I think, is maybe six months after I go live to where we think we're back to steady state. And then I have for each of the rows, I have these different types, you know, W2, 1099, statement of work, offshore, offshore, inshore, nearshore, whatever. And so I, I almost work backwards. I work all, I go all the way to the end. I'm like, okay, I if my little cool models, right. I'm going to need eight people to run this thing. And I'm probably going to, probably always going to want some mix of 1099 w2 so i probably would put something like six w2 and two 1099s to make up my team of eight right and then i'm going to start walking backwards and i think one thing that people um can do or that i do is you start factoring in well what's my turnover rate right so if i hired six w2s today and the project's two years long, just statistics says you're not gonna have those same six people in two years. You know, maybe two of them are gonna move on, right? Um, so I, 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 I then take that into account. I just put in a turnover ratio on all these people. I think uh, 1099s, the turnover ratio is probably higher and statement of work, that's even higher. So I want to start with a um, small number of employees, and this is where we may differ today, in a high number of contractors because I want to try before I buy the contractors. I want to roll them into the project um, with the intent to convert to full-time um, based on the success of the project. I mean, I've read statistics, something like 50% of all IT projects never get implemented, <laughs> right? Oh so I mean, you have to protect the company's money. You can't go hire eight people because you, your model says you're gonna need eight people in three years and then your project gets killed and now you're responsible for those eight people. Um, so I would probably hire two or three W-2s out of the gate and start hiring contractors, 1099s, and look at building that into the 20 um, 
And then knowing I want to, over the course of those two years, go from two W-2 people to six. That's kind of model I'd look at. But you said you didn't love contract to hire. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, I, I, I really don't like it. I, I can tell you why. As a service provider and for the candidate, it, um, it, it leaves a, a continued piece of being uncomfortable, right? And potentially for the, for the uh, customer as well. So, it, you know, you have kind of two folks. You have folks that want to be contractors, right, that, you know, like being 1099 and like making a little bit more on the dollar up front and writing off their own expenses and those kind of things. And you have people who want to be full-time employees, and so in the mm-hmm. model of contract to perm, um, you know, you put someone in, ideally, if the client is wanting to convert the people at some point, that you're putting in people who prefer to be full-time employees, and then you're leaving them in a position of being uncomfortable until that happens, right? And they feel vulnerable. Vice versa, you get the person in that role who likes to be the contractor. And it's like, yeah, I'll take a six-month contract to perm. But in their mind, they're thinking, I'm not going to convert when time comes to convert. And then right. the client is like, hey, I'm trying to convert so-and-so, <clears throat> but I can't convert so-and-so, right? And I wanted to convert them. So the uh, so it just, leads, it just leads to, you know, I, I'd much rather, you know, if it is. So to your point if the number of full-time employees is lower at the start of the project, just to make sure, I would rather hire correctly, right? You know, and, and you can do, you know, I think the average person is a, is a coin flip in, in today's marketplace on average, but I think you could dramatically improve those odds through a service delivery model that's designed to be successful. But on the other side of it, like just during this conversation, if you said to me, hey, Vince, we're going to bring on two full-time employees and we're going to bring on six contractors, right? At some point during, mm-hmm. during the lifetime of this project, that mod, that, that's going to be flipped. So whether it's at some point replacing contractors who don't want to convert to full-time employees mm-hmm. Or we start converting contractors at some point in the future, and that's an option for them. Mm-hmm. I think that's the simple description of that is worded in a way that makes people more comfortable. Because contractors want to be contractors, full-time employees want to be full-time employees. I've never seen anyone from a candidate perspective who really wants to be a full-time employee say, hey, I'm really comfortable being a contractor for six months to be to be tested for six months before I got hired, right? And so, right. Um, but I think if the message was, hey, you know, we're, you know, we're this is uh, we're hiring fifteen people for this project right now. Of those fifteen people, twelve of them are contractors. Sometime in the future, there's only going to be eight people on this project, and two of them are going to be contractors. Mm-hmm. And and you run right. that life cycle out, and uh, and not sell it as I mean. From behind the scenes, the fact that it's a six-month to no penalty conversion, that doesn't matter. That's fine, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But the uh, but going into it, taking uh, someone who wants to be a full-time employee and or someone who wants to be a contractor and telling them that six months there's going to be a conversion, I don't like that. That makes... You're saying that's a... You're saying the problem is not so much the mechanics of it, it's the... It's the personalities of the resource. You're me as the hire manager is treating contractors, people that want to be contractors, and people that want to be W two. I think those are the same humans, and you're suggesting no, not really. No, they're not the same. They're absolutely not the same people. They gravitate to the other. That's right. Yeah. So that's 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 the the challenge. I've always been W two, and I've had some opportunities to do contractor and i i i agree with what you're saying it bristles me a little bit it makes me feel a little well i don't know i've never done 1099 how am i gonna get health care what am i gonna do with this and blah 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 so i i hear what you're saying vince i don't know i've had decent experience converting contractors though uh, and i think if and it's a, a contract a role market. and you just convert them you you know you bring them on you get them to love the company you get them to want to be a w2 employee yeah. you show them the value of it and you make them a job offer and they take it that's that's great yeah. right but that doesn't put the pressure on everyone 
saying that, hey, at some point in the future, there's going to be a decision made. Right? Yeah. And if you're a contractor, now you're con- if you're a contractor and in your heart you know you're like I'm not converting to full time. They're just gonna love mm-hmm. me and I'm gonna make them keep me as a contractor. Well, that's yep. somewhat deceptive to the customer then, right? You know, you mm-hmm. gave me a guy that won't convert, right? Or you know, you, you gave me a girl who really wants to convert, and then she three months into it, someone comes along with a full time job opportunity for her, and she takes it. That's right. And you wasted yeah, the time. Yeah, there. yeah. All right, I'll I'll take that insight. I think the other thing we didn't really talk about much is um, the idea of <clears throat> bringing in entry level talent, even though the the job requires something more. Um, the team of 20, I think that's a big enough size that you can start to think about, well, I'm going to have some super high heavy hitters. Maybe that's my 1099 or even statements of work people. We haven't really talked too much about that. And I'm going to have a couple employees. And then my next kind of category is interns slash college grad slash entry level, you know, boot camp graduate. I think. I see corporate America becoming less enhammered with the college degree, which I think is positive. I think if the skills are there, um, you know, I had a really good friend. They had a child kind of coming out of high school, not knowing what they wanted to do. And of course, you know, American society is kind of pushes people towards college. And this parent and this child were wise enough or, you know, aware enough. Hey, this is not, you know, the best thing to spend whatever, 60, 80, 100, 200 grand on a college degree, which you could spend five, 10, 20 grand on, you know, the world's greatest boot camp. And that's what they did. And they came out and this guy um, is, is, was kind of coding his whole life as a high school kid, you know, the kind of kid that was natural to him. Yeah, who and didn't want to have to repeat English and, and math, you know, all that other stuff. Yeah. I think it's great. Yeah. So I think, um, what's your sense of having a mix of kind of gurus and then, you know, uh, proteges or, or neophytes or yeah, I, I love that. So you know, the trick is being good at hiring those folks and, and creating your process to identify the right ones and people who aren't afraid to work and and have um, work as a priority. One of the drums I beat in my family is that being able to hold a job and work is one of the greatest life skills you can have. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it is you do. If you're a right. good, solid employee, you will always be employed and you'll always be able to take care of yourself. Right. So yeah. the ability to work. So like my, um, my youngest daughter, who's not a great student, she gets good grades, but she does not like school and she's dyslexic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the idea of going to college for you know, four more years and having to repeat, you know, comp one, comp two, you know, algebra and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it really makes her sick, right? The anxiety associated yeah. with that. And, uh, but she's, um, she just got promoted to manager at this little pizzeria. She works in down the street. Nice. She's been doing it for a year and she works hard and she's learned, you know, she's learning how to work, which I'm very proud of her for. Um, I do like yeah. the model of bringing in young, good talent, right? I, I often look at talent acquisition like building a sports team, right? And so when you build a sports team, you're going to have – you're going to spend a lot of money on some very key players, right? These are these are my key. These are the yeah. these are the linchpins of, of this project, this team, whatever we're doing. And then you got to bring in talent and grow talent. And and I, I love that idea. I love having young people who are motivated, who are good, who get it, who work hard, that, you know, are easily trainable, you know, have a high aptitude to, to learn things quickly and, and put those yep. people to work. So I, I do think there needs to be a very... Uh, good mix, right? And you always want to. Where have... do you think that mix is in a team of twenty? Put let's put let's take our fictitious project. Where I give you my uh, expectation of uh, twenty people at, at peak, eight people run rate. I broke that eight people into two contractors and six full time. So as you're thinking about you know day one, how many, uh, regardless of source, how many 
guru type people, you need a team of twenty. Just one, or you need a couple. Or, oh, in a team or of twenty, I, I immediately went to the team of eight in my mind. So, the team of twenty, you would need several, right? You would need probably a couple gurus, and and so if I would, if I just quickly break that down, I'd go yep. two superstars, four, you know, tier right behind them, future superstars, mm-hmm. right? And, yep. and so That's that, that you gives you six, and then probably. Of that remaining fourteen, I would probably do it like eight competent contributors and and six high potential newbies. Cool. Let's do it with just the eight at the end. So out of the eight at the end, how many gurus? Yeah, one one guru, one ready to take one one. Um, uh, you know. Transition. Right below that. Yeah, one right below Free that. Free guru. Yep, so you could you have that there. And and then you've got, you know, of of those original twenty, you you've got you know the rest <clears throat> the rest in there. You know, a couple couple good contributors and a couple of the young ones that made it on up. You know, I think I yep. think you should have a mix. I think diversity in a team is a good thing. Diversity in in not only who they are as human beings, but in skill levels and where they are in their career yep. and the ability. You have everyone kind of at Let the same push. level. It's kind of weird. I want to push. Yeah, I want to push you on that just a little bit. We know uh, having a high performer. Sometimes a high performer could do the work of three, four, five, six people. They just work at such a high level. So why not just have all gurus of the eight? All eight of them, gurus. They're the best people in the world. Well, What's you, the problem with that model? You, well, secession planning is one of them, right? Because they, they bail, mm-hmm. then you've lost the then, you have to, then, then what do you do? Because the, the harder to right. find, the more expensive to have. But maybe you only need like three of them yeah. instead of eight. I'll give a little pushback. Here's my pushback to that yeah. model. I think there is work that needs to be done that does not require the guru level of person. That's true. So one of the tenets I would say is the way I approach work is work should be done at the lowest cost resource who can who can achieve it, right? And so so lots of work is coming into the environment. Project work, support work, you know, training other folks. Even a new person that's been there like a week, they can train the person that just gets hired because they're training them on how to set up their uh, laptop and how do you ask for, you know, a day off or whatever. So, I mean, training can happen at all sorts of layers of the organization. Um, But really, we want to protect those most costly resources. And I don't mean just their dollar amount, although it's often, you know, close to that, but their time is really how I measure. So their time, uh, the, the higher you go in skill set, usually their time is more valuable because they can, they can uh, address every element of work that comes in, right? And so they just often get pulled into a lot of stuff. And so part of my job as a, as a leader is to protect that and try to, hey, I know person A can do this in about an hour, because uh, they're the they're the top, they're the best, and it may take person two three hours to do it, but it would be better for us to have person two do it because a they just frankly have more time on their hands, and b it's a great way for person two to begin to learn how to be person one. Now you can't do that all the time. There's sometimes you just have to pull the trigger and say, "Hey, we're in the ditch here. We got to get this release out the door, or this is impacting customers right now." So. Top dog, person one, you got to do it. Person two, you can kind of pay attention and listen or whatever. So I think it's, uh, I think we're having the right um, conversation. Let's take a short break and then we'll come back up, wrap up our, our conversation here, and then um, get into culture, uh, culture corner. Cool. We'll be right back. So, Vince, people are always coming up to me and they're saying, Jeff, how do you get? A podcast what's the magic how do you even get started and so what I always talk about is the product anchor 
you know, we started this thing and we went in Google, what's the easiest way to get a podcast and like the top 50 results all said Anchor. So we went out and we learned a little bit more about it and we discovered some really awesome parts about it. The first thing is it's free. It's absolutely free. Well, I mean, it gets better than that, you know, because doing the whole process of recording and editing and just the, the creation of the podcast and the engineering, the app literally builds in how do you record it, how do you edit it, you know, you could record right on the, the platform and edit right on the platform and add music on the platform, so it ends up being uh, not only free, but it's how you build the thing. And then the other thing, the next thing really was, how do we distribute it? How do we get it out to the, all, the, all the folks? And so from Anchor, you can do it almost anywhere through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and a bunch more. And it'll handle all the distribution, publishing. It was great. Well, you know, let's talk brass tacks. We're talking greenbacks, moolah, money. Yeah, that's where <laughs> that's where it's at. So it literally is like a, like a banking app. Right, you know, literally, like all these banking apps that are out there, it's really built into the into the platform. So it walks you through how do you monetize your podcast. Yep, it's everything you need really to make a podcast in one place. Well, you know, I would tell all the listeners go to Anchor.fm. That's Anchor.fm. It's a uh, it's the best place to start podcasting. Welcome back. So, Jeff, I wanted to continue on that. I talked to uh, on your idea of how to do the workflow. And as a leader, I know we weren't talking leadership, but I really liked what you said. So I was um, talking to a candidate for a potential CEO opportunity um, for not a technology industry, a pretty uh, tied to utilities, but, you know, a labor intensive industry where you're going to be dealing with, you know, uh, laborers out there, people using power tools, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And this guy, previously in his career, he came out of the oil and gas industry, and he was building a pipeline through Nigeria. And I'm like, so wow. how did you handle the you know the the uh, labor? Right, you know, you got you got guys welding this pipelines, you got heavy equipment, you've got you know all sorts of different things going on to to run this pipeline. You know, you're clearing you're clearing trees, you got you know the right of way that you're maintaining. How did you do it? And and it was interesting because you know in Nigeria you're still running into tribal chieftains who want to make sure you're giving. Yeah, you know, people of the tribe work in parts of the business, and it was just great to hear him talk about like so you know some skills and some safety things. It's like you know, I, you know, we have to have very tight control over. Yeah, but there are labor things that we could do where we could give the chieftain and we'd have to go and negotiate and have to explain to him like these are the different things we had to do and and these were the things that this guy was negotiating on the ground. He's like, I had to be there. You can't take the word of the report of the pipeline. So you're having to go out and visit the pipeline every couple of days, right? And and see what's yep. happening. Um, so it was really cool, kind of a non-technical way, but kind of, he went through the same exercise that that you went through. I really liked that. Hey, before we hit... And then we, go ahead. We haven't talked too much about the fixed bid piece of this. I think that's more common today than it was 20 years ago. I don't know if that's really true. That's just my opinion. Um, so here I'll describe it a little bit and then get your opinion and we'll offer our opinion. So this is where you are, are not hiring a human kind of to do a piece of, you know, to do work or to be part of the team or whatever. Um, and there's all legal kind of descriptions of 1099. Even 1099s, you got to be real careful that. Um, they're not just another employee. They have to come in with a little bit of their own skill set. So you're not really hiring, you know, interns as 1099 so much. But um, the next level of that is is where you're really not managing the resource at all. You're directing towards a outcome, and so you may have an outcome like we're going to outsource the QA testing for this application development. Or we're going to outsource the interface building of the interfaces, all the APIs. Uh, so my team's going to do all the core development. They're going to write specs on APIs, and we're going to contract this company 
they are going to go um, write all the APIs, and then we're going to incorporate them. You can take this to an nth degree and outsource the entire work, right? To, and now you're just managing vendors, and you're having the output of one vendor go to the input of another vendor, and you're you're really just uh, managing vendors. And my impression is that can get very expensive. Um, but what is nice about it is you can um, you can seemingly I say this because I don't see it work as often, but you can seemingly have a bit of insurance or guarantee about the outcomes. So now you're not you've removed a layer of responsibility um, of delivering this uh, product. And you've placed that on these external companies because there's most of these contracts will be written with, you know, a remedy. It's going to be time based. You're delivering these modules by September 1st. And if you don't, uh, A, we're not paying you. And then, you know, by October 1st, you start paying us money because we're getting affected in the marketplace. And so um, what's your sense of how to best use those? You know, like on the pendulum of use them for the entire project, if you just have kind of a project manager directing this to let's don't use them at all. What's your what's your sense? Oh, I don't. I mean, I guess it really depends upon the, the project and deliverable. I don't have a, uh, you know, I'm not anti consulting firm. Right. Uh, or pro consulting firm, you know, in technology, those those waters are very muddy often. But I'll give you a cleaner example of that. So. In the world of construction, a general contractor, right? That's basically their entire business, right? They are, um, they're the hub and they're doing all the construction work. They're responsible for all the construction work and they're bidding, you know, they're bidding the excavating, they're bidding the concrete, they're bidding the yeah, brick, right? right? Subcontractors. Yeah, right? so it's all, everything is subcontractors, right? And everything is, you know, and they're bidding, right? And they're taking, you know, yeah. their, their bids and, and then those subcontractors are, are responsible for deliveries and, and on time. And, and that's kind of a cleaner version of that. You know, I haven't mm-hmm. worked for a, an IBM or a, a Deloitte where we've come in and said, hey, Jeff, we're going to deliver this project on your behalf, right? And we're going to manage it. And this is, this is our deal. I, where I've seen... Um, this come into play in my world is kind of a varied version of it that's kind of half contractor half bid right where it's statement of work it's almost like the the workaround from uh, dealing with procurement right we're gonna get you on a uh, on a statement of work right which hits different hits our you know um, capital expenditures and where you know a budget that's managed separately outside we have more control over who we use for these type of things mm-hmm. and and we're going to do statement of work and you're going to provide us contractors who are under our supervision anyways right so so there's there's kind of that blend in there and i haven't been on that side of it where they're true true delivery third-party um contractors Right, right. So I think where I've seen it most successful is where there is a piece of work that is maybe technically beyond the scale of the team. And that's maybe, you know, misleading because most you can go acquire those people. You can hire those people. Um, but sometimes it's better. It's almost like um, you could probably learn to do some limited surgery on your foot, right? <laughs> but you would never really try that if you had an expert that could come in here and do it. That's done it a thousand times, right? 10,000 times. And so there's things like that where you've maybe never been exposed to this particular aspect of instrumentation or this type of code. And so it makes sense to bring them in and be able to carve off a little bit um, of, of work I've, I've seen it go worse more than I've seen it go better because there's, there's two things that I would just warning signs one of the warning signs is if this is a core part of your business it, it's I would recommend you bite the bullet and train people into it and hire people into it 
so that they can become expert at it because otherwise you'll always be, be dependent on the third party, right? And then the second warning sign I would give you is when you get these statements of work, you'll, you, the customer, start putting these deliverables, right? And it feels so empowering because you can just say, I want them to do this, I want them to do that, and they're going to do this. When the other vendor is reading that statement of work, the very first bullet they put in their mind, not on the paper, but in their mind on every statement of work, their first bullet is be a part of the next statement of work. <laughs> and so that, that is their goal is to always be uh, continuing on into that engagement. And, and so I've seen it just kind of run amok. So I, my, my view on fixed bid statements of work, super um, targeted. I probably would say I would want to hire an outside vendor to handle my legacy day-to-day support so that my team, a mix of contractors and employees, can go to the new project rather than the other way around. I don't think that's how it's handled uh, very much. But wouldn't you use then more of an outsourcing? So the legacy, you know, like I've seen when software, so you're gonna sunset a product, right? You got a product out there, you've now gone to a whole new level of delivering new SaaS products, right? But you have a customer base that you have contracts for on this legacy product that you're gonna maintain for the next three years. Wouldn't you typically then move that to a a less expensive offshore, hey, we're gonna offshore all that maintenance, we're not gonna continue to do new releases on that and kinda sunset Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. through third-party offshore? Not Not a high powered, you know, no, I'm not right. going to bring in a big four consulting firm to to handle that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's a good uh, use of that model. We didn't talk too much about offshore and nearshore. Um, when have you seen those as successful um, pieces of that? Oh my god! Well, it's like it's, this seems like it's always successful in everything that we're doing. I, I don't. I think just as an everyday. Um, person now living in this world, you are whether you like it or not, you're engaging in offshore nearshore models. Um, you know, I had a nearshore work specifically for me out of Brazil on a, a project on a QA project, right? So they wanted to have um, QA that they were offshore offshoring uh, to India in the same time zone. And that was something that was important to them. So they, you know, we did a project where an operation I worked with where they had a, a Brazilian operation to do some QA in, in Brazil. So the time zone wasn't uh, a burden. But, you know, I mm-hmm. I was on Amazon um, uh, two nights ago and I had, a, you know, a customer service issue with Amazon and mm-hmm. I, you know, was connected to someone in India, right? That you know, through their chat, that solved my issue, right? You know, I mean, everything is, you know, there's a combination of onshore and offshore, it seems like, in all major technology players. So it's always at work. Yeah. So what, again, what kind of things would you push to an offshore or what kind of things would you say, no, that's got to stay here or there's no real... There's no real indication there. Oh, I think, you know, as, you know, innovation, you'd want your your innovation, you would want, you know, W2, let's call it, right? So the stuff mm-hmm. the stuff that is you're you're leading the market or you're taking the next step in the market or, or involving trade secrets and, and those kind of things are the things that you're keeping W2, you're keeping in-house, right? Uh, the most important, the most innovative, the the next generation, right? You're not you're not giving that uh, away to someone else to to handle for you. Right. right. That's the stuff that's keeping, and it's the things that are the lower level, um, you know, things that are further away from the money, right? As you know, or the, or the next business. Uh, if you ever read uh, Ferris's book, um, The Four Hour Work Week, right? You know, you stay within two steps of where the money is, and you. Mm-hmm. outsource everything else so you're always by the money right and so from that perspective if it's uh 
it's legacy products, it's low level skills, it's skills that, you know, you know, those kind of things, low risk, low risk, you know, for the business. Um, that's the, those are the things that I would offshore. Cool. Um, so let's interject a little bit. Uh, we've talked a lot about, um, the numbers. How can we think about the emotional feedback of, um, when we're building a team and we're choosing these different types of sources of folks, um, how do you perceive, I mean, you're, you hear the candidate sides, both W2 and 1099 all the time. How do, how do they experience a team getting built and decisions like, Oh, well, we're going to offshore this. We're going to outsource that. We're going to 1099 this. We're going to W2 that. How do you think they're experiencing that from an emotional kind of standpoint? I don't think it's um, on new stuff, right? New project, you're putting it together, everyone is good to go. I think where the emotions come in is, um, I can tell you, you know, I worked for a company with a very significant India operation. I had a big team in India and mm-hmm. we, um, they were very concerned that we were opening an office in the Philippines, right? Like, oh my gosh. Oh, really? Yeah, they're like, oh, we're going to end up, you know, we're all going to end up losing our jobs to jobs in the Philippines, mm-hmm. right? They were very concerned about that. I've seen, you know, when when projects, when, when you know, so when projects enter that, hey, are, are we going to sunset this project? Are we in the back end, something new, or something that was new for, you know, five years ago that you started with, and that project is now matured and, and they're starting to, to your point, hey, you know, that team is starting to get smaller and we're starting to offshore pieces mm-hmm. of that. That's when people start to feel the anxiety, especially if they're um, emotionally invested in the work that they've done and feel like they, their handprint is on that product. So it's the change, mm-hmm. it's the downswing of those kind of things that I think affects people or relocation of offices. You know, I worked at a company where the corporate headquarters got moved to Seattle, right? And it was very deflating for the Atlanta folks. Oh, we're all going to lose our jobs. All of our jobs are going away, right? You know, what, you know the, the turmoil of the office location, the turmoil of product being sunsetted. Those, those are the kinds of things that I see really emotionally affect. On the upswing, right, everyone's just excited and let's go. That's kind of my yeah. high level on that. Well, I like what you pointed out earlier, which was the idea of if you're trying to put W-2 folks into 1099 roles and vice versa, that creates a, an emotional tension, probably unintentional, certainly on my part. That's new information to me. I agree and hear that, so I'll try to be more conscious of it. But So I also think when we talked a little bit about the guru and the um, more the entry level or, and, and what's the right mix, I think if you get that mix out of line, you know, that's a problem too. I've had teams that most everybody was kind of at that guru level and it, and it was, they, they didn't like doing work that was kind of below them, but it had to get done. And then I've had teams where you didn't have enough guru and just all kind of new folks or less skilled or were new to the technology. And that's a problem too. So I think all these things work in together to try to have a, uh, a holistic kind of approach. So any other, to- any other thoughts on this topic before we hit a little cultural corner? No, no I think we're good. Cool. Me too. So cultural corner today, I was going to do the idea of low value um, versus high value add. Low value, low value add, high value, high value add. And so I think that's a, like a tongue twister almost. Some work we do is low value, right? Like it's just not adding value to the bottom line. Some work we do is very valuable to the, to the bottom line, but we didn't really add much value to it. We're just copying and pasting what somebody gave us and we're pushing it on to the next thing, but we didn't truly add value to it. And then um, high value is 
stuff the company really values a lot. And then high value add is where you as a person added a lot of value. And so I have had this conversation before and, and what I would prefer is to see people move up the line from a low value add um, being much of their day to a high value add. And the moment I started having this conversation with this team, the pushback I got was, oh, well, I'm working on very high value stuff. And they truly were. They they were processing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue for the company. So there's no doubt that it wasn't high value. And so I had to kind of elaborate, you know, painstakingly at some point, well, just because you're working in this high value system, that doesn't mean you personally are adding a lot of value. And so um, the, the cultural corner topic or summary would be, if you're not adding a lot of value, that probably could be automated. That's my guess. Or it could be done somewhat more efficiently. And so out of your 40-hour work week, I think it's worthwhile. How much of this is I'm adding minimum value to the work effort or I'm adding lots of value? Even though everything you touch may be super high value, if you're not contributing to that becoming high value, um, I would try to find a way to find someone else to do it, like an offshore or an outsource kind of thing or an automate kind of thing or you know frankly sometimes you just quit doing it right that's like an old adage in it there's back in the day these print jobs would run in the middle of the night and hundreds of pages would print out of reports and the it guy would come in at you know eight in the morning rip them off the printer and throw them away <laughs> nobody, nobody <laughs> used it. it's like what are we doing here i mean that but that concept is uh, really really in place today at corporate america and so if you're not doing work that's a high value add where you're contributing, you're doing analysis, computation, you're digesting it, you're resynthesizing decisions and formulas, and you're predicting, you're giving some sort of analysis to the customer, or to your peers or management. So I would just consider that kind of stuff high value. But if you're copying and pasting and just stamping approval and moving the things down an assembly line of information, then, you know, what real value are you adding to the, the work product? And I would want to break my work week into those two things and see what I can do to get rid of, get rid of the low value add and find more of the high value add. That's my, my two cents. I like that. So what if people just make a spreadsheet they kind of look at, or the manager looks at team activity and make a spreadsheet and like, Hey, this is low value stuff right here. We need to figure out how to dump this this work. That's right. That's what I did. And so, I mean, we kind of went in and understand what are the process flowing here through your team or through your group or through you as a, as a worker. And, and um, what are you doing? You know, how long does it take? What, who do you get it from? Who gets it from you? I mean, this is kind of classic Lean Six Sigma processing, right? And then are there steps we can remove, right? If you can't find somebody down the line that's gonna consume one of your outputs, well, let's just quit doing that output for a week and see what happens. It may be like one field on a spreadsheet. You know, you got 20 fields that you're responsible for filling out and we can map 19 of them, but the 20th, we can't figure out. Well, let's just eliminate that from the next version of that spread, that report and see what happens. And most of the time, nothing happens, right? Nobody cares probably true for many of the other 19 they're just doing it because they've always done it and they're giving it to somebody and so i think you can start to streamline a lot and the pushback i got um vince was if we eliminate all these things that i've been doing for a period of time um by eliminate could we automate right if we eliminate or automate or we give to some other team what am i going to do right and that, that's a very human thing I, I would feel like that too right you're now, Jeff, you're talking about 80, 90% of my job as being low value add. You've maybe convinced me and I can kind of agree to that qualification. But the next step is very scary to me that I'm going to get rid of all my work and then, then they're going to fire me. They're going to lay me off. And my, my response to that pushback was, well, if, 
This is true if you can't move into higher value ad work, right? But if you can move to higher value ad work where you are doing things that nobody else can do easily, right? You're using your, and I, I wanted, I tried to paint it in this picture too. Now you're using more of you as a person, kind of your intelligence, your creativity, your soul, your emotion is now tied into these higher value ad pieces of work. You don't really need your soul to be tied into copy and pasting, right? But you do need your soul and your intelligence and your creativity all tied in if you're going to um, reformulate how we do quarterly projections for, say, the sales team. And if you can achieve that, you become much more valuable as an employee. And nobody's jobs, you know, I've been laid off, right? So nobody's jobs safe forever and guaranteed forever. The business is tough, but... The more value ad work you can put in your 40 hours a week, the less likely it is that someone comes and says, oh, well, what is he doing? Let's, let's, we can live without that. But the very people that all they do is copy and paste and push information around, those are the jobs that when the, you know, you know just like the movie Office Space, right? The big consultants come in and they want to know, what do you do? Does it add value? If not, you're gone. And if you can answer those questions, oh, well, what I do is I pre- I've developed a model to predict uh, 18 months out sales projections. And I've been making it more and more accurate every quarter. And the salespeople love it. They can't live without it. We're talking about enhancing it and making it into, you know, a runtime program and a web page where they can see their scorecards. Uh, last 36 months projected into 18 months. You have a job, <laughs> you know, you may have a job longer than the salespeople because you become such uh, an innovative kind of person. So that's the culture corner. How do you move from low value ad to high value ad? I like that. And not to confuse that with low value work. You can have low value work or re- really you can have high value work, but it's low value ad. You didn't really add anything to that value. Uh, so you want to eliminate all of your low value ad and, and increase all your high value ad. I like it. Cool. Let's sit here right across, uh, all across the world. We are, not the world, but maybe across America at least. It's coming up on opening day for what sport, Vince? Baseball. Baseball, America's sport. What are your top three baseball songs that you can think of? Baseball songs? Uh, uh, take me out to the ballpark, right? Um, yep. A baseball song. That's maybe all I come up with. Baseball songs. Cracker Jack. Oh, no, Cracker, the Cracker Jack theme song. Cracker Jack theme song. Is that a theme song? What do you do? How's it go? What do you do with a kid like that? You call a kid a Cracker Jack? That's good. That's perfect. All right. Then Centerfield by John Fogarty. Right. CCR. All right. And then I'm going to throw out the Macarena. All right. You like the Macarena. Hey, I saw Alice Cooper on one of those VH1 things, and they were talking about like the top 20 uh, sports songs of all time. And this one, I think, was number one. And they were interview. You know, they had a bunch of stars interviewing every song or whatever. And so they get the Macarena. Alice Cooper's like, "Man, when you can tie a hit to the radio and then put it on the sports field." He goes, oh, there's so much money in that. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like, like we, like we will rock you for queen. Artist slash business person can just see people all over the, you know, in all the stands doing the Macarena. And he's like, man, that is money. I wish I had written that. <laughs> I thought it was funny. Yeah. The, we will rock you. There's one that you yep. know, has entered into the world of sports forever. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, are you are you a baseball fan, Jeff? No, I just I don't like baseball. Okay. How about you? Not much. Yeah. Okay. I like those four songs, so that's good. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> On that note, hey, I, people, if they want to reach you or, or talk to you, how do they do that? Uh, Jeff at iCloud.com or you can just uh, give me on LinkedIn. Or we now have a hotline, like a email. You can email the. Email the podcast, right? What's our email address? It's info 
at meetthenewboss.live. It'd be great to hear from folks what are some topics that we should cover. Do you want to be on the show? You know, we had a guest just a couple weeks ago, and that went great. Uh, in fact, today felt a little boring because we didn't have a guest on. It was just me and you again. All right. Well, we'll... So, so let's get some guests back on here, and let's get some user questions. That would be awesome. How do people get in touch with you, Vince? Uh, best way to get a hold of me is uh, via LinkedIn. And if you want to connect with me or uh, have a conversation, anything to do around uh, staffing models or talent acquisition, how to hire better, I'm happy to have the conversation. Cool. All right. We'll talk to everybody next time. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. You have been listening to Meet the New Bus with Vince Catanzaro and Jeff Niebuhr. Available on Apple Podcasts and other streaming platforms. Please like and subscribe. Meet the New Bus is sponsored by Rene Vincent Executive Placement LLC. Contact Jeff at jeff.nieber at iCloud.com or find him on LinkedIn at Jeff Nieber. Contact Vince at Vincent at ReneVincent.win or find him on LinkedIn at Vincent Catanzaro. Bumper music provided by The Who and Budafi. Additional engineering provided by Just-In-Time Recordings. All material 100% controlled by Vincent Catanzaro and Jeff Niebuhr. Unauthorized reproduction is prohibited by law. Meet the new bus.